welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. And welcome back all. I did a lot of talking at the start of the last episode, so I'm not going to do that again here. However, before I begin today's story, which is one which is generally regarded as being for children, I do think it's worth saying that this is actually one of the most horrific stories that I've told. It doesn't include any sexual elements at all. However, if you're listening with children, you might want to give this a listen beforehand, and if you're at all sensitive, you might want to go and check out the trigger warning, which I've put on my website. It is kind of spoilerific, which is why I'm not saying it here, but if you're worried, go and check that out. Okay, if you've done that and come back here, you know what you're in store for. If not, let's just crack on with the tale of The Hobyars. A coal black night, clouds obscuring the nighttime lights of the heavens, and a chorus of voices. Scratchy voices, voices with spikes and teeth and claws, voices in not quite perfect unison, overlapping with each other discordantly. A low chorus, words barely distinguishable on the very edge of hearing, but coming from all around, from the nighttime horizon in every direction came the chant the hobbyars are coming the hobbyars are coming the hobbyars are coming when people say that the fairy tales that are told for children really shouldn't be for children this is the kind of story that they mean the house was almost as remote as it was possible for a house to be in some far-flung valley in the highlands of scotland But this was not some blessed glen of glorious purple heather, towering pines and sparkling water. Perpetually overcast or in shadow, coloured with an uninspiring mix of greys and browns from the muddy rocky ground and the weary greens of the sparse grass, ferns and bracken. Surrounded on all sides by squat hills, there was just one very rough-hewn path in and out. A solitary rowan tree clung to a lichen-painted boulder defiantly, but always threatened to join the mass of dead wood on the ground. Nevertheless, a traveller could perhaps find beauty in such a place, in a lonely, melancholy way, this far-off place at the very ends of the earth. Yet any who had to endure living here day after day after day would be unlikely to agree. Now, it is harder than you might think in pre-modern times for places to truly be remote. Though population densities were low, people were nevertheless dispersed widely, in farmsteads and small communities that kept in touch with one another, by the requirements of the rituals of the year, by the need to trade, and just the human need for contact. And of course, the speed that a horse could travel was rapid when one was available. And neither was walking for a day or two, thought of with the same trepidation it would be today. And in a couple of days' walk, even a fair-sized city could be reached from the farmhouse. I say all this as my usual way to caveat what I am to tell you next about this place, my usual obsession of over-explaining where we are to situate this in the real world. 
Now, versions of this tale disagree about exactly where this happened. They disagree on the location by a magnitude of tens of thousands of miles, but all the versions agree that it happened in the real world. No fairy tale land this, and it happened in a place far away from the usual haunts of humanity. Perhaps this is something that has happened more than once, again and again. Now back to reflecting on the isolation. For sometimes a bit of solitude can be a good thing, a retreat from a hectic world and its worries, a time to focus upon what is important, cut out all the harmful noises, the messages and demands that society can place upon us, a place to slow down, to refocus, to turn inward, to heal, to grow. This place, however, was associated with the other type of isolation. The words cabin fever are kind of flying around this sentence, looking for an opening. Oft-times people pontificate on the loneliness of urban living, the paradoxical alienation that arises when one is surrounded by people. It is said that one can feel the most lonely in a crowded room. And certainly there is a truth to that, which I do not seek to deny. But if you live in a glen, perhaps half a day's walk from another house at all, that can be easily cut off from the world by the changing of the weather, well then you know a thing or two about a very different kind of loneliness. Because despite how close it technically is to civilization, as I described before, when the snows came in, when the mists rolled over the mountains, or there were storms, when the nights were long and dark, when there were no visitors for days, weeks, even months at a time, all those technicalities of distance mattered very little indeed. The farmhouse was made of hemp stalks, an unusual but hardly unknown building material. It was strong and looked not too different from wood at a distance. And in the house made of hemp stalks, there lived an old man, an old woman, and a little girl. The exact relationship between these three is not established. Unlike many a telling where I insert my own interpretation one way or the other, I shall not do that here. There was an old man, an old woman, and a little girl. And while they surely had a history of how they came to be in this place, now it didn't matter. They were simply together. Each day and each night it was just the three of them in that little house, getting on with the tasks necessary to run the small farm and household, all consuming labours and chores simply to eke out a living in that harsh place. Work that left them exhausted each and every day. Now sometimes, when she had a spare moment or two between sleeping and working, the little girl would play, as children are wont to do. But as for the man and the woman, well... On the much rarer occasions when they had time to themselves, they simply sat in their chairs, stared off into the distance, and perhaps the vast foreboding night. At times, of course, the man and the woman both had to leave for the logistics of life here, and rarer still, travellers of one type or another would arrive at the house. But at the time of the story, that had not happened for a while. Each day was much like the last, apart from the slow changing of the seasons that could be seen in the varying colours of the marshland flowers. And almost every night was a true pitch black, clouds obscuring moon and stars. A small farmland in a lonely sea of thick, treacly darkness.
The hop yards are coming. The hop yards are coming. The hop yards are coming. Hop ya, hop ya, hop ya, hop ya. There was one of her who lived in the farmhouse, or around the farmhouse at least, permitted indoors only if the weather was truly at its foulest. He was Turpy, a dog who had lived with the old man, the old woman and the young girl as long as the girl at least had ever known, and to whom trying to assign any pedigree would be a task as fruitless as a mixed kebab and chips. He was loyal and good, was Turpy, and while his role in that little place was, like all of them, defined by the work that he did, it was undeniable that his wagging tail, his open mouth bounding around the house, his playful yaps and his affectionate search for cuddles brought a sorely needed dash of joy and laughter to that otherwise quite forlorn place. And so him and his presence were much beloved. And so the days passed, one after another after another. Sometimes a whole day would go past without a word spoken, except perhaps those addressed to Turpy. The harpyars are coming. The harpyars are coming. The harpyars are coming. Humans had lived in these lands for thousands of years. Even though these might be considered some of the remotest parts of the island of Great Britain, Nevertheless, even here the land had been shaped by culture after culture who succeeded each other in times of violent change, but who in the meantime tamed the wilderness, established their mastery over flora and fauna, and in events that make it less often into the history books, they also fought battles against the other inhabitants of the land, its previous owners. Those who dwelt there before man came, and those other inhabitants of the land were pushed further and further back from domains they once called their own. But all those other strange creatures, well, they never quite went away. But the knowledge of them, if it had ever been known at all, well, the knowledge of them, that had been forgotten by most people. The foolish might even think that the creatures were gone for good, and some, some lucky people could live their whole lives not hearing anything at all about them. But the creatures were simply at the edges of civilization. They had not gone for good. The harpyars are coming. The harpyars are coming. The harpyars are coming. One night, a night much like any other, cloud covering the sky, darkness for miles and miles, the only light coming from the orange flickering farmhouse fire, dull through the thick glass windows, and only furthering to emphasise the depths of the blackness all around it. Well, the old man and the old woman and the little girl were all sound asleep, utterly exhausted from a day of hard work. And the voices, the voices that had been on the horizon, They were closer now, much closer. Through their strange alien eyes, those creatures had been watching for some time indeed, and drawing their plans against the inhabitants of that little farmhouse. The Habyars are here. The sound of their chanting was low and terrible, 
but while it came from all around, the volume of the inhuman chorus was not enough to wake the inhabitants of that little house. Even when, in unison, they started to take up a new chant. Tear down the hemp sticks, eat up the old man and the old woman, carry away the girl. Tear down the hemp sticks, eat up the old man and old woman, carry away the girl. Tear down the hemp sticks, eat up the old man, the old woman, and carry away the girl. Closer and closer the hobyards crept, hidden by the veil of night, while the inhabitants of that lonely little farmhouse suffered strange and uneasy dreams, but remained asleep, tossing and turning in their beds. However, sleeping by a wall in the shelter of the house was Turpy. The dog was ever watchful, and he awoke from his shallow sleep as his ears detected something in the air that was not right. He heard the threatening recitation echoing around the remote glen, and quickly he was fully alert, adrenaline coursing through him, ready to do what nature and man alike had trained him to do, to fight, to protect his pack. He looked out into that foggy night, and that good dog began to growl threateningly, and when the creatures out there crept closer still, he started to all-out bark, a fearsome bark. A bark that, yes indeed, might be worse than his bite, but which nevertheless he was entirely ready to follow up with a lot of biting should the monstrosities get too close. He barked with all his might, and it echoed around the valleys into the ears or whatever passed for ears of the hobyards. And at that sound, well, perhaps surprisingly to you, perhaps not. Well, the hobyards turned and they fled, scattering in all the directions they had come from, leaving the valley. Now you might think it's strange that such creatures would flee at this, but while I shall not furnish you with a description of the hobyards, for I know it not, it is clear that these were not gigantic monsters, but something smaller, horrible things that relied on the cover of the night and there being a fair horde of them. And the resistance of this dog, which was of course sure to wake the people, well that was enough to dissuade them. No, that's too gentle a word. The dog bark incited fear in them, a primal fear, for a time when this land belonged just to them and the wolves, and the wolves had the upper hand. And they fled not tactically, but in terror. As an aside here, a personal anecdote, which is completely true, when I used to watch Lassie as a child, the children's show with the dog, the friendly dog, at the end of the credits, or possibly at the start of the introduction, I can't remember which, there was a bit where Lassie barked a few times, and even though I knew it was going to happen, even though I was rooting for Lassie and her impressive ability to fight mountain lions and to solve whatever dangers threatened the family that week, I was so scared of the sound of her barking that I had to leave the room before that bit of the episode came on. I would hide, peering in, and when the sound came on, I'd cover my ears. Now, I'm not afraid of dogs anymore, apart from in the sensible way that everybody should be, but I understand the deep fear that the bark of a dog can invoke. That realisation that this thing has jaws that it could close around you, and that it is very, very angry. So what I'm saying, I suppose, is that I have some understanding of what the hobyards might have been going through. Now, Turpy's frantic barking continued long after the hobyards had gone, and it was indeed enough to wake the people of the house from their disturbing dreams. And they lay there, listening to him, expecting him to quiet him down. But when he did not, well, the old man, he began to wonder if there could be somebody out there. 
With as much speed as he could muster at his age, he was up and out of bed and throwing on clothes, and he left the house to go to Turpy, who was barking for all he was worth into the night. "'Who goes there?' shouted the old man, his voice unwavering and aggressive. This was his land, and he wasn't going to put up with any intruders that might want it. Though in all the time he had been living here, no one had ever come up all this way in the dead of the night. Silence was the only answer to his question, or more correctly, the barking, which echoed all around. Shut up, boy, said the man harshly to Turpy. Let me listen. And he roughly grabbed the dog. Shut up, I said. And after some unfriendly encouragement, Turpy finally went silent, but resumed his growling. As far as the man could see, there was absolutely nobody out there. Eventually he returned to bed, frustrated and grumpy. He needed his sleep, and he was very unhappy about it being broken, for no reason at all. The hobbyars are coming. coming. An hour or so later, the man was woken again by the sound of Turpy's frantic, angry barking. Out he went, and again found nothing, saw no intruder in the glen. This time on his way back to bed, he kicked Turpy to make the dog shut up. And at this, Turpy gave a surprised yelp followed by a very sad whine. The first of many. Grumbling to himself, the old man went back to bed. An hour or two later, the same thing repeated itself. But by now, the old man was furious. His sleep was completely disturbed. His routine, which had stayed the same for so long, was broken, and there was clearly no one around. This time, the kick that he gave to Turpy was a much stronger one. And back he went to bed. And that night, by the actions of Turpy, the hobyards were kept away from the farmhouse. The old man awoke. He was tired, angry, everything was out of sorts. And he was a man who liked everything to be particular. The only way he made his life here was by everything being the same, predictable and ordered. And now it wasn't. And within him a great anger welled up as the old woman prepared his breakfast for him. She stayed well out of his way as she saw the red mist descending upon him. And she made sure the little girl stayed well away from him too. Over and over he mulled those thoughts. He'd lived here for so long, in this place, with his life of regularity, of certainty, and now everything, it seemed, was in disarray. He was so tired, he was furious, and he couldn't stop thinking about it. That damn dog, barking, keeping him up all night when there was nothing there. Stupid animal. He went to find Turpy sleeping outside after a busy night protecting the household from the hobyards. I do not know this old man's history, do not know whether this was all part of a long pattern of behaviour, or if he suddenly snapped and lost something important inside of himself. I do know that he fetched himself an axe. He approached Turpy, and without any hesitation, he brought that axe down on the tail of the sleeping dog, severing it from Turpy entirely. And the old man, oh so casually, picked up the tail and threw it to the crows. 
I do not have the budget of some schlocky gore film with which to adequately convey the horror of that moment. The blood, yes, but much worse than that. The cries of pain and even more heartbreakingly of utter betrayal and confusion as this good, loyal dog suffered such abuse at the hands of its master. And rather than turning on the old man, Turpy, for all that he cried out in pain and whined pitifully, he remained utterly loyal, surely convinced that he must be in the wrong. He'd done something so hideous as to deserve such a permanent and horrific punishment. And that act of barbarism committed, it seemed to make the old man feel better. Righted the world again. One act of disruption had been met with another, and now, somehow, in the old man's twisted mind, or perhaps more accurately his heart, his feelings, all was order again. What the old woman and the young girl thought about this went unrecorded. But surely they now felt the distance of that place more keenly than they had before. The small house, just for the three of them, and the dog. The dog who that day did not bound around joyfully, playfully frolicking in the glen. Who did not wag his tail. Who would never wag his tail again. Instead, he quietly, desperately, sought affection and care. And the old woman and the young girl... They gave it to him as best they could, while they tried desperately to pretend that this was just like any other day. Tried to avoid looking at the place where his tail had been. And that night, all of them went to bed, hoping beyond hope that the next day would bring something better. It was, of course, dark again. Clouds covered moon and stars, and this night a mist bathed the land all around. Tear down the hemp sticks, eat up the old man and old woman, carry away the Turpy's ears pricked up. Once again he could hear the voices coming from all around him. A part of him wondered whether he should remain silent. Maybe the noise he had made had been the reason for the painful stump. But he also knew how dangerous the things out there were. To him, to the people that he loved. There was really just one choice, whatever it might bring. He stood up on his forelegs, he growled, and then he barked and barked. And the hopyars scattered. And in the farmhouse, the old man awoke. He did not go outside that night. Perhaps there is a danger. Perhaps there is a person here. Perhaps there's a person who wishes us harm, he said. But that dog barks and barks and I cannot get any sleep. And if there is no danger, if I survive this night, tomorrow I will take one of that dog's legs for this. And the old woman trembled in fear and desperately tried not to show it. And the barking went on and on. The old man lay there, grinding his teeth. And eventually, it stopped. The hobyards had fled again. The horror around the farmhouse was gone. But the horror inside it, that very much remained.
The next day dawned. The old man rose late, didn't even bother with his breakfast, went outside. Turpy turned to him, whining. Shut up, shut up, shut up! And with a terrible slice of his axe, the old man cut off one of Turpy's legs. There was the most shocking of sounds as the blade went through flesh and bone. But the anguished, heart-rending cry from Turpy was so much worse. The dog howled and howled and howled. Shock, sadness, betrayal, excruciating pain intermingled in a cry that went on and on as the dog fell, tried to right himself and fell again. But even after this, he did not turn on his master. And when finally the dog had almost howled himself hoarse, The old man calmly tossed the leg to the crows and watched with three-legged turpy as the birds feasted on the fresh flesh of that rended limb. Turpy had been very good at protecting that house against the evil from outside, but he could do nothing with the evil that dwelt within. The day passed with a sickening slowness for the old woman and the young girl who went about their chores, trying to ignore everything that was so very, very wrong. The old man looked over the old woman and the young girl, of course, to see that they were acting perfectly normally. And holding back tears as best they could, they tried to make out like everything was just fine. Desperately, they started to wish that someone would come to that little house in the glen, far away from anywhere. But of course, no one ever did, and that day was no different. That night, all three of them went to bed, all of them hoping beyond hope for a night as silent as they always had been to that point, a night where their dog would not cry out, would not provoke the mad, violent wrath of the old man any further. The young girl and the old woman lay awake, shaking, tears that they had held off throughout the day finally flowing. But silently, the old man went to sleep, and still they knew nothing of the hobyars. Tear down the hemp sticks, eat up the old woman, eat up the old man, carry away the girl. And that night as the hobyars approached the little house in the glen, and Turpy heard them, he did the only thing he knew to do, that he had to do. He understood well now what the horrific consequences would be if he acted, and yet if he did not, then the old man, the old woman, and the young girl. He barked and barked and barked, even though his throat was sore from all the fearful sounds he had made that day, and so his bark was far diminished from what it had been. But still it was enough. Had the hobyards come much closer, then perhaps they would have seen the sad state of the dog that barked at them. But they did not. They fled again into the night. He had done his job. He had kept the people safe. He had been a good boy. Though that was not going to do Turpy very much good at all. For the old man was disturbed in his sleep yet again. Of course, no investigation was carried out. He lay in his bed, uttering a string of awful, blood-curdling curses directed at the poor, maimed dog outside, and promising that the morning would bring further acts of brutal mutilation. 
and when that dreadful next morning came, Turpy tried the best to hide himself away, limping slowly on his free legs to where he thought he might not be found. But the old man searched around for him madly, and as Turpy desperately whined, begged to be spared, cowered pitifully before the monster of his owner, the man did not hesitate, showed only blind fury and then a sick joy and something approaching catharsis as the blade came down once again, a second bloody dismemberment. More food for the crows. And it was another day of mind-numbing, maddening horror for the women in this place that had been a home and was quickly descending into their own private hell. And that, that was without them knowing about the army of small, vicious creatures that surrounded their house every night, intent upon devouring them. If they had known that, then perhaps they really would have tipped over into total insanity. That night, after the women forced themselves through the motions, and the man was strangely pleased with himself, they all went to bed. Turpy, with just his two front legs remaining, had to be carried, dumped in front of the house by the old man, who smiled at him and told him, Shh, be quiet now, shh, be so quiet, good boy, before turning and going inside. And that night when the hobyards came, Turpy's barks were weaker than ever, and yet still they were enough to annoy the old man and to frighten the hobyards away. Though if they had seen the horrendous state of two-legged Turpy, then surely they would have been sickly amused rather than frightened. Now, I do not know if I can truly believe that this went on for two more days, still each day the old man removing another limb until Turpy was left with none at all. It seems difficult to credit just the survival of the dog in the face of such massive trauma. But that's how the story is told. But regardless of how many days passed, it all ends in the same ghastly way. And one day, the old man finds Turpy in whatever pitiful state he is by then, and with one final blow he was become executioner, bringing that axe down, separating Turpy's head from his body. There was utter silence. After each stroke before, Turpy had of course made so much noise, but now, now, the old man looked down at what he had done. He regarded the two pieces of the dead animal, one head, one limbless body, pieces of meat that lay in front of him, which had once been a dog that at one time had trusted the old man so, loved him. And perhaps once the old man had loved Turpy as well. But now that there was glorious silence, he felt no guilt, no shame, no regret, no sorrow. Nothing except some deep satisfaction that that night he would finally get some quality, undisturbed sleep. A point about which he was pretty much as wrong as it is possible to be. And that poor mistreated dog, who had suffered so much in his last few days, desperately trying to defend the humans from a threat that they knew nothing about, 
he finally knew peace and would suffer no more. The day passed very quietly indeed. The women did their best not to be consumed by their fear. They were not very successful. And eventually, night fell. Habya, 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 came the chorus, as it had every night. Clouds covered moon and stars as they continued. Tear down the hemsticks, eat up the old man, eat up the old woman, carry away the girl. Now I imagine that by this point, the hobyars who encircled the house approached it from all directions, crept ever closer. I imagine that they were expecting the terrifying barking to begin afresh, to cut through the night, to put the fear of teeth and claws into them, that they would have to beat a retreat. The whole thing beginning to feel a little pointless when the place had such a keen and observant guardian. I wonder how long it might have been before they gave up, moved on to some other far-flung homestead less well defended, or perhaps to prey on unwary travellers camped up for the night. But as it turned out, the hobyard's persistence paid off. As the old man finally slept soundly, and the young girl and the old woman tossed and turned in nightmares that were barely worse than their waking lives, well, the hobyards got closer and closer to the house. And this night there was not a sound, save for their own frets repeated in those murmuring voices over and over. The hobyards are coming, the hobyards are coming, the hobyards are coming. They were almost there now, closer than they'd ever been. In the grass near the front of the house, a gruesome discovery was made. Claws played over it, picked it up, examined it, then held it aloft for all the other hobyards to see. Turpy's decapitated head. Still just about wet with blood. came the exalted shrieks, and in a great excitement the head was tossed aside as the pack made for the house, and as promised the hobyards tore down the hemsticks that made the walls and they swarmed into the building. The old man and the old woman awoke to the most terrifying sights and sounds. Countless bodies of hideous monsters scrabbling into their room. They didn't have time to make sense of what they were seeing before sharpened teeth and claws were hungrily digging into their skin, ripping out chunks of flesh, reaching bone. They screamed and they screamed and they screamed. The deaths of the old man and the old woman were an unthinkable agony, being eaten alive piece by piece. But even with all the hobbyars feasting on them, they took a surprisingly long time to die. As for the little girl, well, the hobbyars did as they had said. They grabbed her as she tried to flee from that damned place, bundled her into a sack, tied it up tight so she could just shake in mind-destroying horror at the sounds of the old man and the old woman being devoured. The cracking of bones, the wet gobbling sounds from the hobbyars' jaws and throats, claws scraping, blood splashing, and of course, those screams. Though the sounds of eating went on long after the screams finally died away. Though in the little girl's head, they would ring for far longer still. And when, finally, they were quite finished with their meal, 
the Hobyars left. Back into the night they went, taking the sack containing the little girl with them. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you will know that I like my stories to end unsatisfyingly for some odd reason that I don't want to delve into right now. If you haven't been listening to the podcast for a while, now you know, and I kind of hope this isn't your first one. It's not a very representative episode. But anyway, I do like unsatisfying endings, and what I kind of want to say now is, that's it. The end. Leave it there. This is what happens if you live with a person who murders your only form of defence and you live somewhere surrounded by tiny monsters. Now, there isn't a lot of coming back from this, quite a lot of the harm has already been done. But it doesn't end quite there. There is a little more story to tell after the Hobyar's destruction and triumph that night. In the darkness of that night, the Hobyars returned with the girl in the sack to their home, perhaps as a snack for the next day. Their motives are unclear, but certainly not good as far as the young girl was concerned. Now, I'm not sure what kind of home the Hobyars had, though I tend towards imagining a cave in the side of some mountain. Dark, wet, cold passages stretching far back into the bowels of the earth from which these primeval horrors had emerged. But perhaps it took another form, an old barrow perhaps, or the ruins of an actual farmhouse, grey, stone, roofless walls, lichen-spattered, and still just about standing long after the hobyards had cleared out the inhabitants many years before. But whether it was a troglodytical dwelling or something else entirely, when they returned to their home sweet home, they hung up the sack containing the thoroughly traumatised girl. And if you had any suspicion that the Hobyars were doing what they did simply to eat, rather than out of some sadistic pleasure, you can firmly put that idea to rest with what happened next. For every single Hobyar in turn, each and every one of them, opened up the sack, regarded the shaking, broken human inside, looked with fiendish eyes and then in turn uttered words from those blood-soaked, viscera-dripping moors, pieces of old man and old woman falling down into the sack. Each of the hobyards said, Look at me! Look at me! and made sure that the girl observed them. On and on this went, for an hour or maybe more, until every Hobbyar had delighted in gazing upon their captive's terror. Now as the day dawned, the Hobbyars tied up the sack very tightly, and they went to sleep. For of course, Hobbyars slept during the day. The little girl wept and screamed all throughout that day, and it just so happened that there was a man and his dog passing by the remote home of the Hobbyars. Now, to level with you, my listeners, this story strongly implies that this was but a coincidence. The man just happened to be passing. But in light of his actions next, I find that somewhat difficult to believe, and I have an alternate theory. 
that this, this was a man who was specifically hunting the hobyards. But it's not there in the story, it just seems to make a lot more sense to me. Anyway, the man found the young girl crying in the sack. The hobyards were presumably sleeping some way off, perhaps burrowed into the ground, perhaps on a high ledge or back deeper in the cave, somewhere far enough away anyway that they did not see their captive being freed, nor the man doing it. And when he released her, this man of somewhat exceptional ability, firstly he gently coaxed out the story of what had happened. Though I can scarce believe she was coherent, he managed to understand at least as much of what she said to accurately summarise what had happened to her. The full horror of it hit him. Now, whether this nameless man really was just passing by, or actively hunting the hobyards, he was certainly far more worldly wise than the inhabitants of that now destroyed Hempstick House of Horror. A man who had not forgotten what lurked at the edges of civilization a man familiar with the creatures that dwelt in the remotest parts of the land and night. For, in that moment, he either alighted on a plan or modified one he had for a while. For with him was a large dog, far larger than poor deceased Turpy. A dog that was intelligent, loyal, incredibly well trained, and, when necessary, a killing machine. And into the sack from which the girl had come, went that dog. The man did not do the sack up tightly again, and left his dog in there. And she, she did not bark, did not give herself away, as the man took the young girl far away to safety. He simply left the dog there. A risky plan, surely, but... Well, she waited in the sack. Very patiently and quietly indeed so as not to give any listening hobbyards any idea that anything was wrong. It was twilight when the hobbyards awoke, flipped open those bestial eyes, unfurled tails, uncurled claws, grinned at each other with memories of the night before. Hobbyar, hobbyar, they said. Repeating that sound that was both their cry and their name, like some kind of diabolical smurfs. And it didn't take long for the first hobyard to go to the sack, to open it up, to start to say the words, Look at me! And to be cut off mid-sentence, for the dog to leap out of the sack at that unlucky first hobyard, sink her jaws into its throat, shake the creature around and around, and eventually drop it dead on the floor. now it was the turn of the hobyards to scream in terror. Some tried unsuccessfully to fight, most fled. Regardless, the dog she tracked each and every one of them down, and she ate them all up. And that's kind of it. This is hardly a happy ending for this tale, so much awfulness has gone before. The old man, though, I cannot mourn his death too much. Turpy and the old woman both dying horrifically. And I cannot hand on heart tell you what happens to the young girl, or indeed the man who found her. With a background such as the young girl's, it's difficult to imagine an unalloyed happily ever after. But perhaps her rescuer enabled her to have a life that, in the end, approximated as best it could do to a truly happy one 
given her circumstances. But also, perhaps it didn't. Perhaps he was pretty horrible. Perhaps terrible things continued to happen to the young girl. Who can say? The old man and the old woman were dead. They had learned no lesson from this experience, just suffered the consequence of the old man's staggering cruelty. And as for the hobyards, well, the dog ate every one of them up. And that is why there are no hobyards anymore. And so, at this story's end, I cannot say that anyone at all lived happily ever after. And most of them, most definitely, did not. Okay, so that's The Hobbyars. Obviously, I like this a lot, which is why I've been wanting to tell it. It's kind of straight-up horror, but also for kids, for whom horrible monsters, canine dismemberment, and evil father figures are basically par for the course. So the history of this tale. As I indicated at the beginning, it's had a bit of an interesting life. However, unlike some of the tales I cover, it's not debated where this originally arose. There's not a lot of different versions. There is one clear place It just pops into life fully formed as a submission to the Journal of American Folklore in 1891 by one S.V. Proudfit, someone I can't find out a lot about online, but seems to have been both an attorney and an archaeologist based in Washington, D.C., which isn't amazingly relevant to the source of this story. He says that the story was from his childhood, told to him by a Scottish family who came from the vicinity of Perth. Perth in Scotland, that is. And the tale there is pretty much exactly as I've just told, but compressed to about a tenth of my runtime. It's very basic and filled with the kind of repeating lines and motifs I don't use on this podcast, but are very effective in live storytelling. Basically, just saying things like So, the next day, the man cut off another one of little dog Turpy's legs. And obviously, repeating the Tear down the hemsticks, eat up the old man and old woman and carry away the girl. It's definitely no less horrific for being compact. Now, to my knowledge, there is no other earlier tale like this or any other source. On its ultimate origins, Proudfit says, quote, Whether the story came with the family, he means to the Americas, I am unable to say, unquote. So it's quite possible that, amongst a range of other options, someone in the family simply made it up. It's a very localised fairy tale that wasn't written down anywhere else. It's possible that someone in the family heard it from somewhere not Scottish at all. I chose to set my version in Scotland because of this Scottish family who were the original source, and because the only name in the story, Turpy, probably has Scottish origins. But the tale itself doesn't actually say it's set in Scotland doesn't say where it's set at all, in fact. So that's the simple origin of this tale. But how has it made it onto my radar? Well, after that, the story has a bit of an interesting afterlife. First of all, it gets picked up and published by 19th century folklorist Joseph Jacobs, who includes a fairly straight-up copy of it in his book, More English Folk Tales. Uh, A title which is a bit misleading, as... 
which as the title of the book seems a bit odd because this story, as I've just said, is either likely to be Scottish or American. But while he calls it English fairy tales, Jacobs does say that he's including Scottish stories and basically treating lowland Scots stories as if they are English, which is certainly a decision and one I'm not going to reflect too much on here, but probably wouldn't be made today. Now, I don't think I've actually talked about Jacobs before when I've talked all about 19th century folklore collectors who are this podcast's reoccurring character. Maybe a little bit on the Patreon members episode, but nothing substantial. So Jacobs is quite a big name in this world of 19th century English folklore and particularly English fairy tales. Though the actual work he did collecting, not too much. Jacobs was born in 1854 in Australia, somewhere we're going to come back to, and he moved to England when he was 18, went to Cambridge, because fancy university certainly helps becoming a folklorist, he studied anthropology, he was involved in a number of Jewish societies, and eventually, amongst his interest, he started to publish collections of English folklore, and he would later become editor of the Folklore magazine. Now, his collections of, quote, English, quote, fairy tales, which are hilariously neither English, or at least solely English, or fairy tales, were inspired by the Grimm's, who had written about to preserve those stories for, quote, English children in the face of the predominance of German and French tales. And the volume that The Hobbyards is in was published in either 1892 or 1893. So, as I mentioned, Jacobs doesn't seem to have done a lot of first-hand collecting himself. He takes his stories from, well, sources such as this one, submissions to magazines. But he's become a well-known name because these collections of fairy tales were very well received. The 87 tales are illustrated quite beautifully, and they became a bit of a hit. And they clearly went on to inspire a lot of people after him, and versions of these tales taken from Jacobs crop up all over the place. I've told quite a few stories that appear in them before, glossing over Jacobs' involvement in favour of going to the earliest sources. The Buried Moon, the Black Bull of Norway, the Headley Coup, which was a patron episode, all appear in Jacobs, who throughout the 20th century becomes a bit of a first go-to for people looking for English fairy tales. Even though, as he admits himself, the stories aren't really fairy tales in the way we often think of them, rather than a mix of folk stories, ballads, fables, and something more approaching continental fairy tales retold in an English context. I also don't think they're a particularly representative bunch. Rather like this podcast, he's taken a bit from everywhere. But nevertheless, they have established themselves as this quite well-known standard set of English fairy tales, and the illustrations and the tales themselves much copied in later volumes. So these unconnected tales have this kind of importance in storytelling in the 20th and 21st centuries that is in no way indicative of their importance in culture beforehand. As with the Hobbyos, clearly not a well-known story, if indeed a story at all, before the 1890s. Regarding illustrations, by the way, I've not illustrated this episode with a picture of the Hobbyos, though you can go see it on the website page. And I've not done that because I wanted people to imagine their own Hobbyos. And the ones in Jacob's collection that are a very famous image are quite cartoony, whereas really, in my mind, these are something much more horrific. Okay, so that's the Hobbyars in Jacob's collection. And after that, it has a bit of an interesting afterlife. Because chances are, if you're listening in England or Scotland, 
you might well not have heard of this tale before. But if you're listening in Australia, you're much more likely to have encountered a version of it. And that is because in 1930, the Hobyars was included in a school reading book. One of those ones that's used to teach children to read by progressing through stages. This one was aimed at seven to eight-year-olds. A bold choice of a story for children that age that I much approve of. However, this version had been cleaned up somewhat and thoroughly localised. So in this well-known Australian version of the Hobbyars, the dog is called Dingo. He's not a dingo. The story makes that very clear. Just called Dingo. And the old man and the old woman live in an area with gullies and gum trees, invoking the Australian bush. There's no little girl, just an old man and an old woman. And there are various extra details added to the Hobbyars, who skip, skip, skip on their toes, for instance. It tones down the original by saying that the man takes off Dingo's legs and tail and doesn't cut them off. Which, I know it's meant to make it better, but it just feels kind of weird to me. However, the biggest difference is at the end, where the Hobyards kidnap the old woman, rather than the little girl who isn't in the story, and they miss the old man who hides beneath the bed. He then sees the error of his ways, reassembles the dog, and they go and rescue the old woman, as in the version I've just told you, to give a weird happy ending, where the villain is very clearly the Hobyards, and not the old man who has redeemed himself. From what I can tell, this Australian version is based on Carolyn Bailey's sanitised rewriting of the Jacobs story that was first published in 1914, and then somebody later moved that to Australia, presumably to aim at the Australian children. Now, these school reading books were in use for a few decades in the state of Victoria, and maybe outside of that as well. And despite the sanitising of the tale... Articles on the internet suggest that the Hobyards was still fairly traumatising for young readers. I'm very grateful to the blog Lois Storytelling Research for some links on this. You can get the link to that blog on my website. That includes a newspaper article from 2000 where the author basically says a whole generation were traumatised by that tale, particularly referencing a fear of the Hobyards in the bush. It's interesting that that connection, which is now so strong in the Australian version of that tale, isn't even in the original. It's a great example of something I've talked about before, whereby elements get added to a story over time, and very quickly that story can change its whole meaning and focus because of it. One of the reasons I'm always a bit dubious about any folk stories that are said to go back hundreds of years transmitted orally. So, because lots of people in Australia are aware of this, the Hobbyars in Australia gets retold a lot of times, I wouldn't say it's well known now. A couple of Australians of about my age I asked before recording this episode hadn't heard of it, but it certainly was for a whole generation or two, and it even made its way into a film, a horror film Celia in 1988, where the Hobbyars play a bit of a supporting role. And other Australian versions are available of varying degrees of horrifying. So to recap, this is a maybe Scottish tale, collected in America and written down first in the 1890s, then published a couple of years later in a text rather erroneously called English Folktales, went on to terrify children in Australia in the 1930s and 40s, which is a fair old jaunt around the Anglophone world there. And now I've just told it as probably coming from Britain.
but it might not have done. It should go without saying that I really quite like this story. It's it's weird inversion of the idea of the boy who cried wolf, who gets punished for crying it too much. It's horrific and dark, and I love how the Hobbyars aren't really the big bad. The big bad very much is the old man. A perfect children's story. I can't wait to do it live sometime. And that's it for this episode. I'm going to keep business short this time, but I will give a massive thanks to all my patrons who really encourage me to keep going with this. This time a shout out to Nick Pester, who signed up since the last episode. There are now 10 whole members episodes up on Patreon, and you only donate when there is a new one. So if you're interested in getting more stuff from me, go there and sign up now. And many thanks to the rest of you just for listening. I'm so glad that you're enjoying the tales enough to do so. And next time, which will probably be in August now, but we'll see, I will actually be doing the Todman and Witchcraft story I said I'd do last time. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. And you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Mm-hmm.